This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The 2019 freshman class in Congress will be the most diverse and will include more women than any before it. It will also be the largest class of military veterans in about a decade. And one more thing, the U.S. House will have more female veterans than ever. So how might these veterans shape the direction of the country? We're going to ask Congressman-elect Jason Crow from the 6th District, which includes Aurora. Congressman-elect, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. It's good to be here. You're a former Army Ranger, served in Iraq and Afghanistan. Worth mentioning that the Republican you unseated, Mike Kaufman, also served. In any case, I understand that veterans will have offices clustered together. Tell me about that. Yeah, we did do that. You know, there, there was a group of... Uh, uh, Democratic veterans who got to know each other over the last two years on the campaign trail. You know, folks uh, you know, like Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan, Abigail Spanberger in Virginia, Mikey Sherrill in New Jersey. You know, other people who, you know, we have a lot of background. We share a lot of values. Uh, we became friends. We know each other's families. So we decided to continue that uh, relationship building and cluster our offices together uh, in Washington as well. Now, these are folks who have uh, specific military backgrounds, but I also think like intelligence and CIA backgrounds yeah, as well. Yeah, several were CIA operatives. Uh, uh, one was uh, an undersecretary at the State Department. Uh, many are combat veterans. So we all have a, a kind of a national service, military, national security background. Okay, here's the, the numbers. In the freshman class, 22 of the new members will have either served in the military or worked in intelligence. Uh, interestingly, that doesn't make up for the steady decline over the years in the number of members of Congress who are also veterans. Way back when, military service was almost a de facto requirement for higher office. Uh, do you think the country has lost anything over the years with less of that representation? I, I do think we have. And, you know, I, I want to make it clear that I, I don't think that uh, having served in the military is a litmus test for public office. Mm. I mean, we have plenty of fantastic public officials and, and leaders who, who served in different capacities outside of uniform. But I do think it's important that we have a healthy share of representatives and officials that have had that experience. And you look at you know, the post-World War II generation. Number one, um, I, I believe that the loss of civility uh, and the increased polarization is in part due to the fact that we don't have this common tie anymore. You know, you look at a fellow veteran, and, and I'm not going to uh, question a fellow veteran's motivations. You know, I might uh, disagree with their policy prescriptions or proposals, but uh, I'm not going to say that person doesn't love uh, America or this country uh, or question their motivations. And I think the second thing is uh, veterans are more likely to, to ask the tough questions that need to be asked when we're employing our men and women in uniform overseas because we understand the grave uh, and, and sacred responsibility of committing our forces uh, in combat. Do you have any evidence to say that the uh, overall lower rate of veteran participation in Congress has resulted in more conflict or more engagement? Or is that just a feeling? That's a feeling of mine. I mean, I, I you look at the fact that we're in our 17th year of war in Afghanistan, for example. A right? place this that is, you know. This is I've been there twice, fought there in two combat tours. You know, this is now uh, our nation's longest war by a large margin. Uh, you know, uh, our next uh, longest, of course, is, is Vietnam, which mm -hmm. was a 10-year war. 
Uh, we've been at war for 17 years. Just in the last week, four more of our service members were killed. Right. We spend $55 billion a year there. It's, it's quickly becoming our forgotten war. People aren't asking the tough questions. We're, author- we're operating off of the same AUMF, that's Authorization for Use of Military Force, that was passed after 9-11 for all of these conflicts. So it's time for Congress to reinsert itself uh, and, and reassert its constitutional authority and obligation to ask tough questions, to revoke that AUMF, to reauthorize one if we feel it's appropriate, uh, and, and to hold the administration accountable. What is a tough question you'd like answered specifically about Afghanistan? Yeah, what's the plan there? You know, we don't have a plan. You know, just on Tuesday, General McKenzie, who's uh, uh, the nominee for Central Command Commander, that's the regional commander that would have authority over the entire region, including Afghanistan, theater. was uh, uh, at a Senate confirmation hearing, and he came right out and said, we have reached a stalemate in Afghanistan. You know, we have uh, the equivalent of an army division's worth of soldiers uh, almost permanently stationed there now. We're spending $55 billion a year. We have a a very long logistical uh, trail. You know, we have uh, even more importantly... Our, our young men and women, you know, getting killed and wounded uh, on a regular basis there. Uh, I'm not aware of a, a plan. You know, what's the plan? Uh, how are we going to withdraw our forces? How are we going to start winding down that war, but also keep us safe at the same time? I want to push back on this idea. Is it possible that more veterans in Congress actually make the country more hawkish? I, I don't see that. You know, I, I look at um, uh, this current class, for example. Yep. You know, we, I just spent um, several weeks out of the last month with uh, my new, soon-to-be new colleagues, right, on both sides of the aisle. Uh, you know, there were a lot of Democrats there, more Democrats, of course, than Republicans, but you know, spent the last couple of days uh, spending some time with some of the Republican veterans as well. And um, all of them shared the concern that I just articulated. About Afghanistan. About Afghanistan. About, you know, the, this this state of an on, ongoing, you know, kind of state of war, a permanent state of war, the the costs, both in terms of lives lost and uh, uh, wounded soldiers and the impact that, that has on families, but also the, the real financial costs as well. That's a concern that is shared across uh, both parties. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with Congressman-elect Jason Crow from Colorado's 6th District. He is a military veteran, and uh, there is a fairly large uh, contingent in the freshman class in Congress for 2019 of military veterans. We're getting a sense of how that shapes policy. You mentioned that there are Democrats and Republicans in that cohort. Um, so obviously, big differences between uh, and among veterans. But what what do you think is the kind of uniting organizing idea. You've talked about Afghanistan as an issue. What else? Maybe back to that idea of civility. What is it about military service that you think is connected to civility? I think um, it's this idea of servant leadership. And I talked about this when I was on the campaign trail. Um, You know, all, all of us learned from day one in the military that you are a servant of the people you lead, right? And your job is to protect them, to empower them. And, yeah, that's a sense that's, that's, that's something that's really missing in Washington right now. Mm. Uh, and, you know, anybody 
uh, whether you were in the Navy, the Air Force, the Army, the Marine Corps, learned that very basic principle of servant leadership uh, from the, the day they put the uniform on. And we're all trying to bring that back to Washington to say that we're responsible to the people in our communities and our districts. Uh, and ultimately, we are here to serve them. And that was part of the conversation with even the Republican members of the delegation who had served. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, they, we, they all come from the same kind of firm leadership background and uh, grounding. I'd like to talk about the use of troops at the U.S.-Mexico border. They've been deployed to support other agencies that patrol the border. And this week, the federal government extended their stay through January. As a military veteran, a soon-to-be member of Congress, how do you view the decision to have troops there? Uh, I'm appalled by it, frankly. You know, this is uh, the use of our men and women in uniform for, in my view, political purposes, right? I, I do not see, there's no data that shows me that that's ne- a necessary thing to do to deploy soldiers right now. I think uh, the Trump administration is doing that for political purposes. And, you know, these are these are men and women who have been spending the last few years deploying to Iraq, deploying to Afghanistan, being away from their children, being away from their families. And they're going to spend, many of them, yet another holiday away from their families, living in tents uh, along the border in the desert uh, for, again, political purposes, in my view. And uh, You I, see I'm, absolutely no national security aspect at all? In I that? haven't seen any data or any, any information that suggests that we need soldiers along the border to, to bolster uh, the, the Border Protection Service. I, I, I just have not seen it. And uh, I disagree with it, and I'm looking forward to, in January, starting to ask the tough questions and uh, promote hearings to, to make sure that, uh, you know, we're reining in this administration when they do things like this. When you look at veterans from the most recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, how do you see their needs as being different from veterans of past wars? Because I do want to talk to you a bit about the care of those who have served. One of the biggest differences is... Uh, the survivability uh, in, on the battlefield. So veterans of these current wars, uh, people that are getting wounded on the battlefield in Iraq and Afghanistan, are surviving their wounds at a much higher rate. And that's a, obviously a very positive thing. But it's often with something like traumatic brain injury. Exactly. So, you know, battlefield medicine has advanced. We're keeping our soldiers alive when they get wounded, but they're now returning at higher rates with very severe and substantial injuries, traumatic brain injury, uh, PTS. And what we do know is that there's an overlap uh, and, and kind of relationship between TBI and PTS. They, so we're talking about the relationship between traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress. Right. And the symptoms look the same. Uh, they, they, you know, they, they overlap. So we have to, one, kind of retrain our medical professionals within the VA to be able to accurately diagnose it, to, to treat PTS and TBI and these other uh, very substantial injuries and build the infrastructure within the health administration to support them and their families. I mean, that's fascinating. You're saying that the battlefield has evolved, battlefield medicine has evolved. The medicine, when these folks come back home, has to evolve in concert. Absolutely. I mean, the, 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 obviously, the great news is uh, these folks are coming home. Again, we're, we're keeping them alive. The casualty rate is going down. Uh, but more folks are returning with very uh, severe injuries. This, of course, makes me think of the new VA hospital in Aurora, in your uh, district, uh, it's open, but the project is plagued with cost overruns and delays. It's apparently just not big enough. I mean, the old hospital remains open to fill that gap. What's the next step in getting the new hospital to the point where it can serve all the veterans it's supposed to? 
Well, I mean, it, it, it's, it goes without saying that this hospital has become a monument for mismanagement by the VA and the government. I mean, that's absolutely clear. Uh, but let me say that, that your predecessor beat the drum constantly about uh, problems within the VA. What do you think you'll do that might get different results? Well, we have to do a couple of things going forward. Number one, we have to hire the staff and the personnel to staff that hospital. I mean, they have to hire several hundred now medical professionals to make sure that uh, we are actually keeping the appointments that we need to keep, uh, that we have the doctors, the nurses, the the physician's assistants to uh, uh, um, service the 460,000 veterans in Colorado and the 700,000 within the region that this hospital serves in the Rocky Mountain region. That's number one. Uh, Number two is we do have to build another building there. That's going to cost another 200 to $400 million potentially, and we have to keep the the old facility open another three to five years. Uh, so making sure that the VA uh, has transportation between those two facilities, that they're keeping the quality up at the old facility while we transition to the new one is going to be really important. It's a money issue. It is a money issue. And it's a management issue. We have to make sure that we're providing the resources to the VA to do it. But we also have to have the oversight and we have to uh, have the right people in the job to manage that transition effectively. We will track its progress and yours. Jason Crow. thanks for being with Thank us. Thank you, Ryan. Really appreciate uh, being here with you. Democrat Jason Crow, congressman-elect for Colorado's 6th Congressional District. Crow will replace Republican Representative Mike Kaufman. Both are veterans. The freshman class in the new Congress includes the most number of veterans in about a decade. Let's take a few moments to get your feedback in loud and clear. Our justice reporter, Allison Sherry, brought us the story of people with mental illness who languish in jails across Colorado because they aren't competent to stand trial. Allison described for us the types of offenses that land these folks behind bars, like trespassing in a grocery store or spitting on an ambulance driver during a psychotic episode. Will Dunn of Denver objected to her phrasing, ambulance driver. He points out this is a pejorative that many in emergency medical services find offensive. His recommendation is paramedics, which he says is a reasonable catch-all term. Also this week, we reflected on the now controversial wintertime tune, Baby, It's Cold Outside. Lyrics like, say what's in this drink, make some people cringe. My guest was KBCO morning host and jazz columnist Brett Saunders. Well, listener Lynn Clyde Alleman wishes we'd chosen a different voice. Interesting story, she writes, but I would have liked to hear what an expert on sexual assault, like a professor of women's studies, thought. Keep your thoughts coming. Find all the ways to get in touch at CPR.org slash connect. And we'll be right back to unearth some old stories from a Pueblo cemetery. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. They said, go, go see Dr. Dahl. I'm Carla Walker from Colorado Public Radio Classical, and that's conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill, my co-host in the CPR Performance Studio for a new podcast exploring the life and work of one of the great composers, Sergei Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff may be the best example, maybe the only example, of a composer who overcame severe writer's block with the help of hypnosis. He'd walk down the street to Nikolai Dahl's house, lie back in a deep, comfortable armchair, and Dahl would speak to him in this soft, hypnotic voice. You will begin to write your concerto. You will work with great facility. 
The concerto will be of an excellent quality. Hypnosis worked. Rachmaninoff was able to write his second piano concerto, the middle movement of which is absolutely stunning. It starts in this still, dark C minor. And very quickly, it turns to a warm, comforting E major. For CPR's great composers wherever you get your podcasts, and thanks to CPR's supporting members who make digital content like this possible. Learn more at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In Pueblo, history comes alive on a symbol of death. I'm talking about the 61,000-some headstones at Roselawn Cemetery. It's the final resting place of hardworking family folk, of people who died by the thousands in disasters, and some people who played big roles in world history but are rarely talked about now. They're all described in a new book, The Hearts and Souls of Roselawn. Lucille Corsentino heads the Roselawn Foundation. Lucille, welcome to the program. Good morning, Ryan. How are you today? I'm doing well uh, and eager to hear about these stories. Why don't we start with a priest buried at Roselawn, Monsignor James Hugh O'Neill. He was the chaplain to the legendary World War II General George Patton. And uh, your book describes a particular encounter that this priest had with Patton. Tell me about that. It's a very interesting story, Ryan. Um, James Hugh O'Neill was serving as the chaplain under Patton during World War II. They were socked in solid with fog and rain, unable to land the paratroopers behind enemy lines. Patton phoned O'Neill, and he said to him, I want you to write a prayer and ask God to provide us some good weather. (laughs) O'Neill replied, the weather is his domain, sir, and he will do as he wills. Well, we all know Patton was known as old blood, guts, and glory. And he said to him, there are three ways a man gets what he wants, by planning, by working, and by praying. We're going to pray about this, so write the prayer. It was more or less an order. So O'Neill wrote the prayer. 250,000 copies were distributed to the troops. The weather cleared. They were able to proceed with the invasion, and history was made. Is marked the turning point of the war known as the Battle of the Bulge. After the war, O'Neill served as a pastor here in Pueblo at Sacred Heart Cathedral. And uh, he will always be remembered as the priest who wrote the patent prayer. He rode his bread bicycle through the streets of Pueblo. But for us here in Pueblo, we'll always remember him as the priest that wrote the, the patent prayer. Well, I so think it was pretty commemorative. I'm sorry? I think we ought to hear this prayer. So from the Academy Award-winning movie Patton, uh, let's hear the title character played by George C. Scott, of course. Read part of the prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, we humbly beseech thee of thy great goodness to restrain this immoderate weather with which we've had to contend. Grant us fair weather for battle. Graciously hearken to us as soldiers who call upon thee, that armed with thy power, we may advance from victory to victory. 
and crush the oppression and wickedness of our enemies. You said just a bit earlier that Monsignor O'Neill would ride his bike all around Pueblo. People would see him do that. You, you, did you call it a bread bicycle? I'm going to just admit to my ignorance here. Yes, yes, that's what we've been told, sir. <laughs> a bread? I don't know what that is, a bread bicycle. A red, a, a red bicycle. bicycle. Yes, bicycle, okay. a two-wheel bike. Not a bread bicycle. Okay, let's move on from that. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk about someone else you profile. Her name is Eliza Boone. Uh, the last name is no coincidence, so follow me here. She was the slave of frontiersman Daniel Boone's grandson. How did, Eli- yes. how did Eliza Boone come to Colorado? Well, she was actually born into slavery, into the Daniel Boone family. And evidently, they passed her down through the generations. And uh, her, his grandson, Colonel A.G. Boone, was asked to come out here to uh, Colorado uh, at the start of the Civil War to uh, start an Indian reservation on what we now know as Boone, Colorado. Hmm. When he got here, uh, he was trying to negotiate with the Indians, and one of the Indians passed away. One of the Indian chiefs, Ryan, passed away. Well, the Indians, being superstitious, viewed that as a bad omen, and all negotiations ceased. But Colonel Boone just loved this area, and he offered to buy the 1,400 acres from the government, which he did. Aunt Eliza was with him as she had come out west with with his family. And after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, the Civil War was over, he freed her and she moved to Pueblo. Uh, she lived her last 34 years of her life in Pueblo, working as a washerwoman, as a nursemaid to very, some very prominent families in our Pueblo community. When she passed away in 1893... At that point in time in history, for an African-American to pass away, they were lucky if they even got their obituary in the paper. This woman had a full article written about her life, how well she was revered and trusted and loved by the Pueblo community. So she definitely had made her mark in our Pueblo community. We found her story through a gentleman who does research for the Pueblo County Historical Society. He actually submitted Aunt Eliza Boone's story for the book. And it's just been a phenomenal background for our entire book. The book is about Rose Lawn Cemetery in Pueblo, and we're hearing about the stories of those buried there. Uh, I made reference in the introduction to thousands of people buried at Rose Lawn um, who died because of disasters. Um, Can you just shed a a little bit of light on some of the local tragedies that land people there? Yes, sir. We had three Pueblo tragedies. The first one happened in 1904. It was known as the 1904 Eden train wreck. There were numerous uh, lives lost. Many of these people were on their way to the St. Louis uh, World's Fair. And it was just, uh, it's till today, sir, it is known as the second uh, largest world uh, train tragedy in the nation. Then in 1918, we experienced the Spanish flu epidemic. It claimed 50 million lives worldwide. It was pandemic. Numerous lives were lost here in Pueblo. And in 1921, we experienced the Great Pueblo Flood. And there again, numerous lives were lost. Uh, Families lost mothers, fathers. It was just three tragedies that just devastated our community. When you look at Roselawn, what does it tell you about Pueblo as a whole? I mean, I think, having looked at the book, that it certainly displays what a diverse place Pueblo has been for much of his history. 
Absolutely. We have a very rich and colorful history. It is a story about Pueblo, and it is written by the generations of families who are buried here, governors, senators, congressmen, business magnates, bishops, clergy, sports luminaries, farmers and factory workers, and countless immigrants from Italy, Russia, Greece, Mexico, Ireland, Africa, Slovenia, Serbia, and a host of other countries. Thousands of veterans from every war, from the Civil War to present-day Middle East conflicts, are buried here. A Medal of Honor recipient of the Civil War is buried here, Warren Dokum, And numerous African-American soldiers who served in the Civil War have been laid to rest at Roselawn. So we have a very, very diverse history here. Okay, one last person to talk about. I think this might be my favorite story from the book, also from the World War II era. It's described in a story titled The Lady with a Crown. Who is she? Oh, she's one of my favorites, Ryan. Thank you for asking about her. (laughs) Mary Babnick Brown. She had 34-inch hair, went clear past her buttocks, beautiful blonde hair. She used to braid it, and she'd twist it on the top of her head. That's why they called her the Lady with the Crown. At the start of World War II, there was an ad in the Pueblo paper asking for women with blonde hair to cut their hair and send it off to the government. They specified it had to be 22 inches in length, had always been washed in pure soap, never been cut, and never chemically treated or heated with a curling iron. (laughs) Mary tells her mama, Mama, I'm going to cut my hair and send it to the government. I can't go fight like the boys do, but I can do something to help. And help she did. She sent her 34-inch hair to the government, and it was used for the crosshairs in the Norton bombsite on the B-17s, the B-24s, and the B-29s. As we know, the Norton bombsite was a carefully guarded state-of-the-art instrument. It was so advanced that it was surrounded by booby trap charges, and the crew was ordered to detonate it if there was any chance it was seized by the enemy. After much soul-searching, as we know, President Harry Truman made a difficult decision to drop the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, and a few days later, the second bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. Japan surrendered, surrendered, and the rest is history. I had no idea when you say crosshairs that that has an actual follicular root to it. No idea. You, actually, there is a Norden bomb site on display here in Pueblo at the Wisebrod Museum at the Pueblo Airport, and you can go out there and look through the cross, look through the Norden bomb site into the crosshairs and see this. It's phenomenal. Fascinating stuff. Thank you, Lucille, for sharing it with us. I can't wait to go to Roselawn. I'm I'm ashamed that when I've been in Pueblo, I've never stopped by. Thank you. Well, stop by and we'll give you a personal tour. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Guarantee the same for my listeners, please. Uh, Lucille Corsentino, she's president of the Roselawn Foundation in Pueblo. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And I'm Andrew Dukakis. We have a story now about a boy whose father died when he was young and about the man who stepped in to fill that void. In the 1970s, Darth Hurlburt, who now lives south of Denver, decided he wanted to do something to help a kid in need. So he signed up to be a big brother. He was matched with Tom Spitzelberger. Darth is now 93 years old. Tom is 57. The first time we met, we went to Burger King right across from Lincoln High School, which is where I had gone to high school. And we talked. And uh, quite frankly, we've been doing it ever since. (laughs) Not not a lot of Burger King anymore, but um, 
Darth and Tom have one of the longest-lasting relationships, born out of Big Brothers of Colorado, which turns 100 this year. It was formed in 1918, in the words of one of its founders, to give fatherless boys the advantage of a man's counsel and friendship. Big sisters came a bit later. Darth remembers early on taking Tom to the slopes. I took him up on time to go skiing, and he didn't have an inkling of what to do. Well, and... and Darth actually explained that to me in in terms of there's a lot of things that at that time that I was very good at. Um, Skiing was not one of them. (laughs) By far their favorite activity was driving up to Boulder for Buffs games. They still do it today when Tom can get away from his job as a Denver deputy sheriff. Darth went to see you and get season tickets. Well, I'm an avid football fan. And so... I've been going to the games uh, just about every every year. Quite frankly, you've been going to these games longer than I've been alive, and then some. <laughs> um, you know, and I've always been a big CU fan. Um, it hasn't always been easy to be a Buff fan. Amen. Um, but as much as I enjoy going to the games, it, equally if not more so, is just getting the chance to see Darth. Recently, the two went to the celebration marking the centennial anniversary of Big Brothers Big Sisters of Colorado. When we went to the 100-year festivities, I'm still a little, is what they refer to, the the little brother. So I'm a (laughs) 57-year-old little brother. I kind of now consider him part of the family as a son. So, you know, I have somebody that I can, you know, kind of play with and and uh, like you would if you, you had a child. Darth never had children of his own. Tom says it's hard to watch his big brother getting older. You know, there there have been a couple times where where Darth is either um, taking a fall or you hear that there's doctor's appointment and then you start asking questions, well, what, what's really going on and this and that. And, you know, I can't, I can't imagine him not being here because for me, he's, he's pretty much always been here. CPR's Andrea Dukakis talking with two men who share a bond through Big Brothers Big Sisters of Colorado, which is celebrating its 100th anniversary. Darth Hurlbert became a big brother to Tom Spitzelberger after Tom lost his father when he was young. The two met about 40 years ago. Darth is now 93, Tom 57. traditional music performed at a powwow by Yellow Jacket. They are Ute drummers and singers. The Utes are Colorado's longest continuous residents. They've been here 13,000 years by some estimates. A new exhibit opens this weekend at History Colorado in Denver. It aims to reconnect all Coloradans with Utes, past and present. Ernest House Jr. is among dozens of Ute tribal members who helped develop Written on the Land, Ute Voices, Ute History. Ernest, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Ryan. Honored to be here. You believe that Coloradans are touched by Ute history on a daily basis. What, what are a few examples that you see? 
Well, absolutely. I think one of the primary examples are the roads we drive on, you know, not just on the front range, but through the mountains. These were a lot of the trails and systems and, and networks that, that the Utes have created for the last, you know, as you say, to 10,000 years that we've used as, as nomadic tribes from traveling various parts of the state. And that's just one element there, but also utilizing the environment and, and utilizing uh, different passageways and, and continuing our tradition and history in areas you may not think, like Rocky Mountain National Park or Garden of the Gods. Would tell me about Rocky Mountain National Park. Absolutely. Rocky Mountain National Park, as we know it, I mean, one, we still have a, a traditional hunting blind still standing up that the Utes traditionally used um, and other tribes in the area as well. But also the last recorded bear dance for the Ute Mountain or for the Utes uh, in Garden of the Gods was in the early 1900s. And so these areas have always been sacred and unique and always utilized by the Ute people. Oh, I'm glad you brought up the bear dance We have a clip of this. You can hear the rasping, growling sound along with the singers and drums. The bear dance still performed today. Absolutely. One of the oldest recorded dances in North America. It's still being done on all three of our community reservations. And it's done during the springtime, a time of renewal, uh, new beginnings. And it's just amazing. And and it's also an open dance. We include, we invite everybody, non-Ute and from different tribes to come and participate with us. You don't see that as appropriation. You want them to take part. Absolutely. I think education's the key here. Just like this exhibit, the more people know about Ute tradition and history, but it's also, this exhibit was created with the tribes. So we're not saying anything that the tribes aren't wanting to share and aren't really wanting to encourage people to come down to the communities. I think you said there that there are three reservations. Will you lay out what those are? Absolutely. So it's the, what we refer to them as the Northern Utes, the Ute Indian tribe of the Uinta and Uray uh, tri- uh, community in Fort Duchesne, Utah. We have the Southern Ute Indian tribe here in Ignacio, Colorado, and then my tribe, the Ute Mountain Ute tribe here in Toyot, Colorado. The Ute Mountain Ute. The exhibit, as we said, is called Written on the Land. And I, I think Uh, That title is so powerful because there is so much connection to the landscape. In a way, it's almost like the history isn't in books. It's in the land. Absolutely. I always say that that Native people, including the Utes, were were green before green was cool. And I think that part (laughs) of that has always been throughout history. Written on the land means... Our stories, our traditions, our cultures have always been in these mountain ranges and these valleys and these peaks that you see that we take for granted sometimes. But we go out in these communities and we hike and we we go in in, in rural parts of Colorado. Even though it may not be in, in, in an English language or it's in our language or it's in the most recent bestseller book, when we go out into these rural areas, when we go out into these vast forests, and these wildernesses, they continue to hold our stories and they continue to speak to us. And we, we continue to, to learn from that. And that's what you're going to see in this exhibit. Now, I just want to push back a little bit and say that there are certainly uh, American Indians in this state who have benefited from the, the exploitation of, of resources and from oil and gas as well. Uh, uh, just a bit of the filler, fuller picture there. Absolutely. Well, I think this exhibit, what you'll also see is it'll bring people to current contemporary issues. What we don't want and what I've always encouraged uh, museums and institutions is to not keep our American Indian stuck in 1876. You see that a lot? Absolutely. And I think when we're moving uh, exhibits to more interactive than just text object of a black and white photograph, it 
it keeps American Indians as a vanishing race. And that's exa- exactly what the exhibit does. And to your point, yes, our two tribes are the largest employers in their respective counties in the state of Colorado huh. and con- continue to contribute, um, not only providing jobs, but also encouraging education for their young people to come back and work for the tribe. I am fascinated by the ties to front range real estate. Talk just a bit about that. Would you? Absolutely. The Southern Ute tribe, I think, is one of the largest economic uh, uh, drivers in terms of tribal enterprise throughout the country. There's 573 federally recognized tribes throughout the United States, including Alaska. And so I think when people look at tribes and tribal business, these tribes are operating businesses as well to thrive. And part of that is a real estate development. Um, the Spire Building downtown was once owned and built by the Southern Union Tribe. Belmar Center in Lakewood was once owned by the by the Southern Union Tribe. The Candelis planned neighborhood in West Arvada is something that the tribe's a part of. And you would never know. I wish they put a big sign out there a lot of times and say, (laughs) you know, this is brought to you by such and such tribe, because I think it also brings people to current. The spire, the the condo building just across from the theater district. Absolutely. That's so interesting. Okay. I find it interesting as well um, that there is a feathered headdress in this exhibit at History Colorado that belonged to the last hereditary chief of the Southern Utes. Your great-grandfather was the last hereditary chief of your tribe, the Ute Mountain Utes. Uh, And your father, the late Ernest House Sr., was an elected tribal member. Why did the tribes begin electing their leaders? It's a great question, and it's something that you're going to be able to see in this exhibit. And it's a difficult time, but really when my tribe, the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, signed our tribal constitution, which we were required by the federal government to, to do. By the U.S. federal by government. By the U.S. federal government. Uh-huh. Uh, in order to be federally recognized, we had to change and adapt over to a, a, a elected voting system. So it effectively ended our traditional hereditary chiefs or our leaderships and moved towards one that we have a chairman and tribal council that are elected every single year, and they're, they're staggered, so every year's an election year. Now, I suppose there are some who will look at that and say that's progress, right, to go from uh, something that's hereditary to something that's more democratic. But if that change is f- forced upon a tribe by another government, that's a really mixed picture. It's complicated, it seems. Absolutely, and I think it's just one example where our tribal leaders are looking at old policies, these these federal policies or even state interaction that can and should be adapted to better suit the tribal communities today. And I think a lot of tribes throughout the country, I think even our two Ute tribes are starting to look at ways to go back to the old system, but go back to the old ways. How do you encourage more of that traditional culture while still maintaining the contemporary policies of today would that, you, that they want? Would you give us an example of that? Absolutely. I think one thing is um, is blood quantum. It's a very... Uh, very hot button issue around who is a member of a tribe. You know, there's this political status for tribal members to have. My, my, my tribe, in fact, has a blood quantum very high. It's half blood to full blood to be a recognized member of the tribe. A lot of these tribes were forced to put these requirements around who are going to be official members of the tribe in these constitutions. And over time... That was not their decision in and of themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely not. And I think it's one of these policies that we've seen tribes change on their own to recognize new incoming, the next generation of tribal members. That means liberalizing those rules and including more people? Absolutely. And I imagine you see that as critical to the survival and to the thriving, the future of a tribe. Absolutely. I think that we're always looking at ways to support the future generation. We want to have an established ongoing culture and history that we can share. If we don't change some of these outdated policies, 
there may not be a tribe to to recognize that in the future. Fascinating. Okay, there's a piece of beadwork uh, from your family in this exhibit. As we wrap up, just tell us about it. Absolutely. I think a lot of what you're going to see in this exhibit is a lot of different designs, but Utes are known for their intricate beadwork of amazing colors and bead sizes and the history around different beads and, and how it was used and the different um, uh, pictures from roses to geometric designs. And I think one of the things that you'll see is not, I'm just honored that my family has one of them, but so many Ute families are amazing beaters. And we're coming on a time, Ryan, during the winter time where historically that's where a lot of beadwork was done in these teepees. Inside, staying warm (laughs) next to a fire and also sharing those short stories. And you're going to hear on see all of that uh, in this exhibit. Okay. We've come to the part of the conversation where I say thank you. And I understand that the Ute word for thank you has a relationship to a place in Colorado. Absolutely. It's it's the community. It's the name of the community of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, which is, to, you may you may pronounce it as Toyak. Toyak. Pronounced Toyak. It means thank you. It also means it's good. And I can't think of a better word to describe not only today, but this weekend in this exhibit opening. Uh, thanks for being with us, Ernest. It's thank nice you. to see you. Ernest House Jr., who is Ute Mountain Ute, helped develop written on the land, Ute Voices, Ute History. It's a long-term exhibit opening this weekend at History Colorado Center in Denver. Do cats secretly rule the world? I always tell folks that, you know, if an alien race were to look down on our planet and uh, they take in feedback or anything that's on, you know, posted on social media, they would probably assume that cats kind of rule over humans. That is Denver entrepreneur Brandon Zavala. He's the man behind Cat Wine. Yes, wine for cats. This weekend, he hosts the city's first cat convention. The two-day event features vendors, music, adoptions, and celebrity cats like Lil Bub, whose dopey look has made her a social media sensation. Not all cat people are, are what people would consider like these crazy cat ladies or, you know, crazy cat men or these people that are crazy and have 10 cats, you know. Some people that have these 10, 15 cats, they're doing it for a reason. They're doing it because they're trying to help these animals um, either find homes or to have a home for their lives, too. And, and we're trying to, yeah, we're definitely trying to break that stereotype. You know, that, that idea of a crazy cat lady will just be the idea of a, of a cat lady in general. So. <laughs> I didn't know this, but there are actually a lot of cat conventions around the country. Zavala says this is Denver's time now. I think a lot of people don't realize that it's actually a pretty big cat city, too. So, so we're trying to make that, uh, make that happen and, uh, and put ourselves on the map. Brandon Zavala, founder of the Snowcats Cat Convention. It's this weekend in Denver. <laughs> Finally today, it's Hanukkah, the Jewish Festival of Lights, and to celebrate, we're going to play an excerpt, just a little taste, of the holiday extravaganza we just recorded at the Newman Center in Denver. It was a mix of music, conversation, and just a little monologue from me. So I'm the son of a Jewish father and a Lutheran mother who converted to Judaism, and growing up, our house had a menorah and a Christmas tree. I mean, I I can say when I was little... I didn't give much thought to that blend, except that I got way more presents, I think, than most other kids. But I remember my first day of Hebrew school. It's an initial step towards your bar mitzvah. And the teacher asked us to go around and say our favorite holiday. (laughs) I'm sure that the other kids in the class answered Purim or Rosh Hashanah, but I blurted out Christmas. And... 
It was an awkward moment. In the dark of winter, Jews burn candles to celebrate ancient miracles. Denver singer-songwriter Julie Geller was inspired by a Hebrew prayer traditionally recited this time of year. She is joined by guitarist Ben Cohen for an original Hanukkah hymn. Ba 
Thank you, Julie. Thank you so much. Sit on our couch. Thank you. I think that Jews in particular are so grateful for a Hanukkah song that isn't the dreidel song. Yes, yes, yes. It's so nice to have that original. That's yours. Yes. Uh, it is based, I understand, on the traditional prayer, Al Hanisim, recited during Hanukkah. And it says, we thank you for the miracles, the salvation, the mighty deeds, the victories, and the battles, the wonders you performed for our ancestors in those days at this time. What does this song mean to you? What does this time of year mean to you? I find Hanukkah to be actually a very deep experience for me. And there are two themes I try to tease out in the song. One is pride, pride in who you are. And that's a theme of Hanukkah because we put our, our menorah, our candelabras in the window. And Jews have not historically been the majority culture. So to do that act is an act of pride, of saying this is who I am. So for me, that's, to me as a Jew, but for every single person on earth, whatever their background is, to have pride in who they are. And the second is miracles. Hanukkah is our holiday of miracles. And they didn't only happen in ancient days, they still happen today all around us. Do you think that's true? In other words, I, I look at the miracles, you know, in the Old Testament, and I think that's, that's of another age. Where do you see miracles when you look around? So I did another Hanukkah song called I Believe in Miracles. And for the video, I asked people to send me pictures of themselves holding up signs of their miracles. And can I tell you a couple of them? Uh, please. One is, had a heart attack in Times Square and resusc- was resuscitated by a total stranger. That, to me, is a miracle. A 42-year-old man walking with his family, and he's perfectly fine today. So that, to me, is a modern-day miracle. Another one was a couple holding up a sign that said, was told by many doctors we could never have a baby, and here's our baby. Now, you said earlier the, the pride that comes with Hanukkah and displaying your Judaism to your neighbors. How do you feel about doing that right now? I feel comfortable doing it. Um, I, I don't know that I represent all Jews when I say that, and certainly not all Jews in America or even around the world. There will be a menorah in your window, in other words. Absolutely. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having and me. And sharing your talents. Denver singer-songwriter Julie Geller with Ben Cohen of Denver on guitar. It's an excerpt of the Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza, which airs in full December 14th. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.